John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would graciously give us assurance this morning of our faith in Christ, not as a result of our works or to whom we were born, but the great work of your spirit in us as you give us faith to believe, a love for one another, and a desire and commitment to obey your commands. Give us that assurance this morning, Lord, that we might live lives in such a way that bring you honor and glory, both now and forever. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Apologize for the technical difficulties at the beginning of the service. I don't imagine Christ had those issues when he was preaching and teaching in the first century. How many of you came in this morning, came in here with an assurance of your faith in Christ? That you know that you are saved by God's grace through faith in him as a result of the tests that John has given us these past several weeks. I intended to do the last several verses, 13 through 21, in one sermon. A couple weeks ago, as I began my in-depth studies of these verses, I realized I wasn't going to make it, not without doing a two- or three-hour sermon. So that by God's grace, we divided this up. I'm going to this morning, verses 13 through 17, and next week we will close our series in 1 John, looking at verses 18 through 21. John wants us to know. He says in verse 13, we actually looked at this in the very first sermon of this series. He says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so as he draws the letter to a close, he's reestablishing why he started writing the letter in the first place. To know that we know God. In fact, in these last few verses, he uses that word to know. He uses it seven times. He's used it over 40 times in the letter. To know that we know God. He gives us a particular teaching here on prayer and intercessory prayer. And a particularly challenging verse in verse 16, which I pray that you're patient with me as we try to understand this properly in the context of this particular passage. This morning, I'd like us to look at three things. One, the assurance of our eternal life in Christ. That you can have that assurance. Number two, the assurance of answered prayer. And number three, the assurance that is secured by Christ. Assurance of our eternal life, assurance of answered prayer, and an assurance that is secured by the blood and the work of Christ on the cross. Let's look at the first point, the assurance of eternal life. John wants to make sure that as he wraps up this letter, we didn't miss the purpose of it, the theme of it that runs its way all the way through all five chapters. And so he reiterates, again, I write these things to you, verse 13, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you that you may know. What things has he written? What have we looked at these past 15, 16, 17 weeks? John has systematically given us test after test after test 
That we can, as those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, take and examine ourselves with them to, to have assurance in this faith. And so he says, I write these things to you that you may know. And what's amazing is we look at these, the, the examinations that he's given us. There's a wonderful similarity. They're objective, not subjective in their criteria. In other words, when we, when we go back and we look, he, he teaches to write doctrinal belief and write behavior not some emotional or spiritual experience, which is unfortunately for many in the church today, we will hang our salvation or our insurance based on something we have done or an experience that we have had. John does not do that and the Bible does not do that. Right doctrinal belief and right behavior in alignment with that belief is what John goes back to again and again. He tells us that if we walk in the light and confess our sins, that we have fellowship with the Savior. Behavior. Behavior. He says we can have assurance of our faith if we know that Jesus is our advocate and he intercedes for us with the Father and that he came to take away sins, right belief. He says we can have assurance in our faith if we keep his commandments and in so doing know what? That we are born again, right behavior. By loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and not loving the things of the world. He says we can have assurance by knowing and following the truth rather than the teachings of the false prophets and the many antichrists who went out from the church. He says we can have assurance by practicing righteousness rather than practicing sin because only those who practice true righteousness are children of God. He says we can have assurance by believing that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That means we can have confidence on the day of judgment not because of our work, but because of the great work of Christ. And not because we say we have confidence, it's because God said, you are showing your love for one another. We can have assurance by knowing that the testimony of God is greater than the testimony of man, and he testifies to the work of his son. Test after test after test, it ascribes assurance to right doctrinal belief and right behavior. That's so reassuring for me. I can be a very emotional person, and when I'm down, I can question my faith in Christ. And when things are good, I think, well, things are good with him too. I'm so thankful he doesn't call us to some religious experience or some emotional um, time in our life. Instead, he grounds it in truth and he grounds it in our lives, how we live in light of this truth. The great theologian Robert Law writes this. He says, with John, the grounds of assurance are ethical, not emotional. Objective, not subjective. Plain and tangible, not microscopic and elusive. He says there are three, belief, righteousness, and love. We looked at that two weeks ago. Belief, righteousness, and love by his belief in Christ, his keeping God's commandments, and his love to the brethren, a Christian man is recognized and recognizes himself as begotten of God, saved by God, born again by God. This is the assurance that we have. Belief, love, and obedience. Submission to God. If you came in here this morning not having an assurance of your faith in Christ, by God's grace, you have ears to hear this morning John and what he's teaching. He wrote the gospel. The gospel of John was written by the same apostle 
that we might have life. He says in John 20, 31, he writes that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. So that's why he wrote the gospel. And now he writes 1 John, why? So that we might know that we have eternal life. He says, I wrote the gospel that you might be saved. And I write this letter that you might know that you are saved. Why? Because it's, imp- it's important that we know. Why? He said, can I, can I just be saved? Yes, you can be saved and not have assurance. But it will impact the way you live. God calls us, indeed God commands us, to have an assurance of this salvation that he's given to us through Christ. When you look, when you take the Gospel of John and you take the letter of 1 John, we see four things that come out. Hearing, believing, living, and knowing. Hearing, believing, living, and knowing. And so John desired for those to hear the Gospel, those who heard it to believe. And for those who believed to live in accordance with that faith. And for those who were living in accordance with that faith to have assurance of that faith. And so he puts all these together. He says, but hear, believe, live, and know. We, we get the first part. We say, I've heard, and I believe, and I'm striving to know, but I don't know. I want to know. John wants you to know. God wants you to know. I want you to know assurance in Christ. And not based upon some religious experience or an emotional high, but based upon the gospel truth and the word of God itself. There are some Christian circles today that argue you cannot know that assurance on this side of heaven is not possible. There are other denominations that actually pit certainty of salvation against humility. That if you're certain that you are saved, that you lack the humility that brings about salvation. They need not be pitted against one another. Saints of God desires us to hear, believe, live, and know salvation in Christ according to the teachings of the Bible, then it is a sinful thing to say that you cannot know or neglect the process of being assured in our faith. And there is a process, an evaluation, a testing. It is God's call, it it is God's desire to say that you cannot know is to distrust the word of God. To say that you cannot know is to call God a liar because God is saying you can know. Additionally, Not having certainty of our salvation in Christ will impact your walk in in many cases severely. John said, I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Now that means that there are people who have heard, they have believed, they have been saved, and they don't have assurance. Because you don't have assurance doesn't mean that you're not saved. Certainly there are many in the church that fall into this category. They are saved, but they're not sure they're saved. I can tell you this, in 11 years of pastoring here, there have been brothers and sisters who've come into this church without that certainty of salvation, and it has an immediate impact on their daily walk with Christ. They doubt their salvation, and it can cripple a person. It sucks the joy out of their life. It limits their usefulness in the kingdom. Rather than being steadfast and strong in the work of Christ and the salvation he brings making great strides and bearing much fruit. The, unbeliever who is un- the believer who is uncertain is tossed around by circumstances, good and bad. When things are bad, they question their salvation. When things are good, they think everything's good. Up and down. A lack of assurance 
renders the believer weak, always questioning, nervous about eternity, nervous about salvation. And this makes sense. I mean, I, I understand this thoroughly. If you believe that there's an eternity and you believe there's eternal life and there's an eternal hell and you believe that that eternal life existed in the beginning with God, if you believe that eternal life was manifest in the person of Jesus Christ coming to earth, if you believe that that eternal life was made available to you through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and if you believe that you get that eternal life by being born again, by being regenerated, if you believe that to be true, and that this eternal life goes on forever and ever, and it is the fullness of joy in Christ, if you believe that, and you also believe the opposite, that there is an eternal death. If you believe that the, that the absence of life, the absence of joy, the absence of knowing God the Father is real, the wrath of God, the condemnation of sin in hell, and it, it is also endless, and it is the fullness of suffering. If you believe these two exist, and you're not sure what one you possess now, what your eternal destination is now, it will make life unlivable. Most people will go through and they'll reject the idea of eternal life or they'll assume that they're going to have eternal life because they're a good person. But if you believe in heaven and hell as the Bible prescribes and you're unsure of which one you have now, Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? What good would it be to eat and drink and be married today if you know that when you die, you'll spend an eternity in the weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll spend eternity in a place where the worm never dies, where the fire is never quenched. How could you possibly enjoy anything right now if you think that that may be my end? The potential of experiencing this catastrophic end this everlasting hell would strip every last ounce of temporal joy out of this life and it would crush us. How many of you have been anxious over an upcoming event in your life? Maybe it's a wedding, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a job, potential job loss. Maybe it's getting news from a doctor waiting for a biopsy report. An impending crisis. And how many, as a result of this, have lost an appetite? You can't eat. Maybe you're the type of person that you can't sleep because your mind's preoccupied by that uncertain future. Some of you draw into yourself. Some of you get isolated and you close your doors and you take off your phone and you, you don't exchange email or text. And all this over the uncertainty of a temporal future. All this, this is how oftentimes we react. The same can happen spiritually. If we're not assured of our salvation in Christ, if we're uncertain of our eternal life or our eternal death, if we do not know, if we're fraught with concern over our eternal standing, then isolation, lack of joy, a loss of the taste for life may result as well. And the impact is a diminishing of our testimony the glory and majesty of the living God in and through us. We are to magnify his glory with our life. We're to be salt and light that go out into the world and share the gospel and people see God working in and through us. Being certain of it, on the other hand, equally changes everything. 
If you're certain that you have been born again, not because you were baptized and not because you read your Bible and not because you're in church today, if you have assurance of your faith, because as John said, you have faith in the Christ and you have a genuine love for brothers and sisters in Christ and you are obeying his commands, not perfectly, but you are striving to that end. And when you fail, you repent. If this is happening in your life, This is the manifestation of the spirit in you. You have been born again. If you have that assurance, then there is no fear of condemnation for those who are in Christ. You would not be so concerned about the opinions of men and culture. If you have this assurance, you would not be so easily moved by the trials and the failures They wouldn't bring you so low. And we could also say that you wouldn't be lifted so high by your successes. If you have this assurance of salvation in Christ and you know that your destination, your life is secure, it will compel you out of love to serve others, to minister to others. You will share the gospel. Listen, you will share the gospel with those who profess Christ because they might not be saved. You'll share the gospel with those who profess Christ because they too may not have assurance of this faith. You will, you will share the gospel with the lost, with the neighbors, your coworkers, your friends and families, those who have yet to have this salvation. Temptations will be less tempting because you will be fixing your things on, on, on the heavenly realm. Your thoughts will go there. All the blessings of the heavenly realm promised to you in Christ. You will certainly be less religious trying to do certain things to put God in your debt that he might be pleased with you and save your soul. You'll be zealous for his glory, recognizing that living for him will not be a life wasted, but the best life lived. Having a biblical assurance of your salvation in Christ will change the way you live. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, Listen closely. He says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Because have this assurance until the end. Why? Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So John says, I write these things to you, verse 13, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life so that we can be certain of our standing in Christ, assured of our being born again, and live as God intends us to live. Glorious, brilliant, joyful, holy, power-filled lives. Assurance in Christ brings that. It'll manifest that. A lack of assurance will be the opposite. So first he calls us to have assurance of eternal life. And then he calls us to have assurance in our prayers. Look at the second point. Assurance of answered prayer. And this makes sense. If God is our Father through Christ, if we have assurance of that relationship now founded by Christ, then John says you should have assurance that this Father hears your prayers. Look at verses 14 and 15. So this is not only an additional assurance, but it's an arsenal It adds to our our means of evaluating our assurance in Christ. Look at verses 14 and 15. John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John's saying, if you know that you've been born again, if you know that Christ is your savior and you know that God is your father, then you should have great confidence in entering the throne room and coming into the presence of God and lifting up prayers to him. Why should we have confidence? He is our father. He is your Abba father, your heavenly father. With a childlike confidence, with a childlike faith coming into his presence. This passage is wonderfully simple. God is wholly attentive to the cries of his people. He hears your prayers. How often have you been praying and you thought to yourself, no one's listening. No one's hearing. I'm just praying. Silence. The psalmist writes, Psalm 80, verse 1, Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth. John is telling us that this prayer is fulfilled in Christ. That every prayer, big or small, clear or convoluted, eloquent or simple, is heard by God if you are his son or daughter. Everyone. Every single prayer. Truth be told, as one author put it, he is far more ready to hear than we are ready to pray. That one stings a bit for me. He is far more ready to hear our prayers than we are ready to pray to him. Oh, Eve, little faith. Not every prayer is going to be answered by God in the affirmative. Every prayer is heard by God from his children and is answered with a yes or a no or not yet. But every prayer is heard and every prayer is answered. And we see in our passage here that those prayers that are asked according to his will will be answered. The New Testament gives us several operating parameters for effective prayer. In the New Testament, in John 14, 13, we're told that an effective prayer is to be in the name of Jesus Matthew and Mark eleven twenty eight asked in faith. James four three coming from unselfish motives, and we're told in James five sixteen that an effective prayer proceeds from a righteous life. Here, John tells us that an effective prayer, one that God hears and answers, is one that is in accordance with His will. With His will. And then we're told in verse fifteen, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. That's a, that's a hard grammatical structure in the ESV, but the point is clear. It's not that every prayer that God hears, He's going to say yes to. He's not a magic genie in the sky. He's not a dysfunctional father that foolishly gives everything to the child when they ask. He's a good father. He's a God that answers every prayer in accordance with His glory. And he answers every prayer that is absolutely best for his children and the redemption in his kingdom. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God, says Stott, or bending his will to ours. Prayer, Stott says, is the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. I love that. Prayer is coming under his will. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. And then he says, every true prayer then is a variation on the same theme, thy will be done. Every prayer, 
Every prayer we lift up to God should be, Thy will be done. If what I have said to you is not in accordance with your will, then Lord, do not answer it. You don't need to tell him that. He won't. And if it's not answered immediately, then you must know that your timeline is not God's timeline and his timeline is best. It is best for his glory. It is best for his kingdom. And it's best for you even though you don't think so. How oftentimes have we prayed? Say, Lord, why aren't you answering me? He says, not yet. Not yet. We are not patient. You can have great confidence in this. That as a son or daughter of the king, if you have lifted up a prayer to him, it remains before the throne and will be answered in accordance with his perfect will. It will be answered. Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 11, verse 24, he says, I tell you this, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whatever you've asked for in prayer, if it's in accordance with the will of God, believe it and it will be yours. Now, saints, if this is true, if this biblical teaching on prayer being heard by God and answered by God and the power of prayer is real, then it should have an immediate impact this day on our lives and how we pray. How so? First, I would argue it should compel us to pray more and more fervently if this is true. Prayer is a lost discipline in the contemporary American church. I know we pray before meals, we pray at corporate gatherings, and we pray sometimes during our devotional time. But if this passage is true and others like it, then prayer should be a defining component, a defining characteristic of the life of the believer. If you know that you have assurance of faith in Christ, then you know that God is your Father. And if this is true, that means that every prayer you lift up to him is heard and it is answered in accordance with his will. Our great problem should be praying too much. We should be coming to us and get off your knees. We should be serving now. Get off your knees. We should be singing now. Not let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. We don't want to pray. Anything you ask according to his will be answered. That's an amazing statement. It convicts me how faithless I am. Secondly, if this is true, it should compel us to pray unfettered requests before God. This is your father. He is a good father. He's a perfect father. That means every prayer you lift up to him that is a bad prayer, he's not going to answer. He's not going to give you. He's not going to say yes to a prayer that's not good for you. He's not going to say yes to a prayer that doesn't bring him honor and glory. So you can pray. Pray on the things that you do not know. Pray on the things that you do know. He is the perfect prayer filter. And he's going to say no when it's best. And he's going to say yes when it's best. And he's going to say not yet when it's best according to his timeline. Saints, the great crisis of faith is not believing that God has our best interests in mind. If you are assured of your salvation in Christ, then I can guarantee you from the word of God, God has your best interest in mind. Your best interest. Pray. Unfettered prayers without ceasing. So if you, if you, you ask God for a new job because you don't like the job that you're in, or you're asking God for a spouse because you're lonely, or you're asking God for a friend 
a friend who will be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. And you have yet to receive these prayer requests. And many of you say, I prayed this for many months. I prayed this for many years. You can conclude one of two things. One, he said no to you. Maybe. Or maybe he, said, he has said yes, but not yet. What you do know is that he has heard your prayer. If you have assurance in Christ, then you can have assurance that he hears your prayer. And that means, my beloved, that our prayers must recognize the infinite wisdom of a sovereign God and our pathetic limitations on both our knowledge of the future and our power to change it. And it's pathetic. We don't know this afternoon or this evening, let alone tomorrow or this week. A third thing I believe that this should compel us to in line with prayer is that these truths should compel us to know God's revealed will better. To know what his will is. John says, if we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. Now, without going into a 60-minute dissertation on the various wills of God, it is important that we have a general understanding of it. And I'm going I'm to shrink this down and try to make it real simple. And then we, you can go back and study. You have God's sovereign will, God's decorative will, the will he decrees. Much of this is unknown until he makes it known in action. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. His sovereign will. His sovereign will will absolutely come to pass. You have his perceptive will. Precepts, perceptive will. That will that's revealed in his laws and commandments. That will that we have the power but not the right to break. Thou shalt not murder, lie, steal, covet, commit adultery. You shall honor your mother, father, and have no other gods before God. You have his dispositional will or his will of disposition, which describes God's attitude or disposition, things that are pleasing to him. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Peter says he is patient with you, not wanting, not desiring anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, although we cannot know the hidden will of God, we can know the perceptive will and much of his dispositional will. We can know these things according to the word of God because he's revealed that to us. What does that mean? That means we ought to be praying in accordance with the Bible. We ought to be praying in accordance with the will that we do know, that which has been revealed. Why? Because we know this. When we pray in accordance with God's revealed will, we know that he will say yes. How do I know that? It says so in verse 14. Let's take the prayer of confession. A brother of mine just this week who, was, who had sinned and was grieving over his sin. He came to me and said, I don't know that I'm saved. This sin was so grievous to me. I said, you're not believing what God said. I said, did you confess your sin? Yes. Have you repented of your sin? Yes. Have you turned from it? Yes. He says, but I don't feel like God is forgiving me. Foolishness. The Bible doesn't say feel that God has forgiven you. The Bible says that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. That's the truth. That's the word. That's the will of God. So if you have sinned and you confess your sin and you turn from that sin, God says, I have forgiven you. Stop waiting for the emotional response to it. He's answered that prayer. There are times when I will hear a believer praying something that is in contradiction 
to the revealed will of God. I've heard saints pray that God save the whole world, save everybody in the world. The Bible teaches God is not going to do that. Saints, he will never answer a prayer of yours that is in contradiction to his revealed will, ever. So you can stop praying that will. I have heard believers pray for an answer already revealed in the word of God. Lord, should I become a member of a local church already in the word of God? Lord, should I get baptized? If you're saved, it's already in the word of God. Lord, should I be a good steward with my money? Already in the word of God. We ought not ask for wisdom where the, God, where the word speaks directly to it. We might ask that we know what God said. But it doesn't take wisdom to, to hear his revealed word. It takes wisdom to apply it. At the same time, much of God's decorative will is veiled to us. What does that mean? That means we ought to pray boldly and pray regularly without hindrance because there's much of God's will we do not know. So pray. I pray for people in my mission field that are not saved. I don't know if God's going to save them, but I've lifted it up to God. And I say, by your will, save this person. He may or he may not. If they're not elect, he will not. But I do not know this. So John calls us to have assurance of eternal life. And he calls us to have assurance in our prayers. And if this is true, then it should compel us and how we pray for other people. Look at the third point. Are you still with me? Are you still with me? Or have, we, have I lost you completely and you're already thinking, what's for lunch? Don't think that yet. Thank you, brother. You know, in some churches, they say a lot of amen, praise God, amen. And at least that gives the preacher a false sense that people are listening. They may not be. You know, maybe that jerk reaction, you know, they're asleep. You know, amen, praise God, preach it. I have no idea. I pray that you're listening. Pray that you are. Last point, the assurance secured by Christ. Having revealed that we can have assurance in Christ through belief, through love, and through obedience, and having revealed that we can have assurance in the prayers we lift up to God because God is our Father and He answers every one of our prayers in accordance with His perfect will, John now turns our attention to a particular type of prayer, intercessory prayer, where we pray for one another. These are the most important prayers that we lift up to God. Praying for one another. It is without question, without question, one of the greatest privileges of the Christian life. And I would also argue one of our highest responsibilities that if truth be told, if we took a, a, a poll in here, we are falling woefully short in our praying for one another. This should take much of our time. Praying for our brothers and sisters here in this church. Praying for our brothers and sisters in other churches. Praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world. Interceding before a holy God on behalf of those in our mission field who are not saved. Intercessory prayer should, should take much of our time. What a privilege and what a responsibility. In the Old Testament, one of the sacred responsibilities of the priest was to pray on behalf of God's people before a holy God. We're told in 1 Chronicles 16.4 that God appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. Why? To make petitions. To make petitions, give thanks, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Now, saints, if you are assured of your salvation in Christ, if you know you have been born again, then you are a priest as well. And as a priest, you have, been, you have been empowered and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that means that you are equipped and the Bible calls you to engage in intercessory prayer for other people. Great privilege and great responsibility. James tells us in James 5, 15, and 16, great passage here on intercessory prayer. He says this, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. And then he says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And then he says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful, dunamis, power, and effective. Intercessory prayer is not just something we do whimsically or haphazardly. He says, when you pray, it is powerful and effective. So John provides some insight. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. John said, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Many of you know that verse 16 is a highly controversial verse. <laughs> uh, we find one type of intercessory prayer that's encouraged, one type of intercessory prayer that is discouraged. We find one type of sin that does not lead unto death or types of sins that do not lead unto death, and we see a sin that leads unto death. I can tell you this, that many a Reformed commentator disagree on the interpretation of the sin that leads to death. So let's do the first part. Let's look at the intercessory prayer that we are called to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ for that sin that does not lead to death. Let's do that first and then we'll look at the sin that leads to death. The Bible makes it clear that the consequence of sin, every single sin before a holy God is death. It's spiritual, eternal death. And that means every sin needs to be forgiven for any person to have eternal life. For any believer to have eternal life, every single sin committed, past, present, and future, must be covered by the blood of Christ. It must be. So John says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Seeing the sin is important here, and I don't want to just blow right by this. We're not to speculate on sin. We're not to presume that someone is sinning based upon feelings or perceptions. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.11, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? The sin must be visible. It must be manifest. We must be able to see it. And then what does John say we ought to do when we see that sin? What does he say? He says, ask God. Ask God that he would forgive your brother for the sin. Ask God that he would forgive your sister for that sin. He says, intercede before a holy God in prayer. He says, God will forgive that person by covering their sins with the blood of Christ. He will pardon them. He said, how do I know that? Look at verse 14 again. He says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What is God's will for the redeemed? What is God's will for his children? God's will for his children is eternal life. That means he will cover every single sin, past, present, and future, with the blood of Christ for his children. He will. 
And therefore, he says, ask and pray it with great confidence because I've already told you that he's going to answer that prayer. It is God's will that he forgive the sins of his chosen ones. Of the redeemed, Job tells us this, Job 14, verses 15, 16, 17. He says, you will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. Good visual. You will cover over my sin. So when you pray to your father to forgive your brother or sister in sin, a sin that does not lead to death, a forgivable sin, you are praying in accordance with God's dispositional will. It is his desire to forgive those he has redeemed by the blood of his son. And therefore, you know and you can know that your prayer will be heard and your prayer will be answered because it is in accordance with the will of God. This is why it's such an incredible responsibility, praying for God to cover and forgive the sins of our brothers and sisters. So let me ask you this question and answer it honestly but rhetorically. Is this your first response to a brother or sister when you see them in sin? When you see someone sinning, is your first response, I must go to God and I must pray. I must get on my knees and I must petition my father to forgive my brother for the sin I see him committing. In our predominantly prayerless culture, I do not believe this is our first response. Many of us grievously will ignore the sin altogether and take a Cain response. We will say, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my responsibility? Others will take the throne themselves and instead of praying, they will judge, they will condemn. Oftentimes this condemnation will be only in the heart and the mind of the person doing the condemning. It will oftentimes lead to silent treatment. I'll just treat you differently. I won't talk to you much. I won't say hi to you much. And if I say hi, it won't be that loving. Hey, hey, sinner. It may lead to the sinning of the tongue as we express our condemnation with others. It may, it may lead to a harsh rebuke where you go to your brother, not in humility and not in love, and you lay it out, and you may be right. You may be speaking the truth, but that's certainly not how God calls us to go to a brother in sin. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter six, verses one and two, he says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? Gently. Then he says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to be our brother's keeper. Now, John is not advocating that we don't go to a brother and hold them accountable in love. John is not nullifying the need to execute church discipline in particular cases where a person remains characteristically unrepentant. He's not teaching that, but he is saying this. If you see a brother in sin, pray first. Continue to pray. If you're going to go to a brother or sister and, and confront them with a sin, you better be prayed up first. All sin we know is vertical first. All sin is against God first. And God is the one who must forgive that sinner. And therefore, it makes sense that we would go to him out of our love for God and out of our love for them and ask God, petition God, come before God on our knees, seeking forgiveness 
for our brother or sister in sin interceding on their behalf. What about those whose sin leads to death? What type of sin does John say you ought not pray for this? Look at the latter part of verse 16. 1 John 16b says this, he says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. As I said, this has been debated and discussed for centuries. The great question, of course, is what is this sin that leads to death? And if whatever that sin is, why ought we not pray? Why ought not we ask God to forgive that person? Some of the interpretations go as follows. I'm just going to touch on them again. This will be an area where you need to go back and study on your own. Some use the Old Testament distinction between unintentional sins and intentional sins. Some argue that John is drawing upon the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit addressed by our Lord in Mark chapter 3. If you come from a liturgical or more specifically a Catholic tradition, then you may argue for mortal sins, those most grievous sins, murder, adultery, blasphemy, Sin that leads to death, and then the sins that don't lead to death, the venial sins, the ones that do not require confession. Failure to pray, unintentionally taking God's name in vain, stealing something of little value, a little thief. A better approach, I believe, in the context of this passage is to examine who it is that John in this letter would see committing a sin that leads to death. In the context of 1 John, he was talking about those who went out from the church, the Antichrist and the false prophets, who were teaching that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh. If it's the believer that commits the sin that does not lead to death, to whom John says you ought to pray, pray for them, then a sin that leads to death would therefore be a sin committed by a non-believer. Someone who does not have eternal life. Now, given John's constant refutation throughout the letter against the so-called brothers who had left the church and were now teaching heresy, the Antichrist, the false prophets, who who were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. They were denying that Jesus actually ascended the cross in the flesh, that he died in the flesh, that he was buried in the flesh, and that he rose again in the flesh. They denied these things. It is likely, I believe, and I'm up for much dialogue on this, that the sin that leads to death is a denial of the gospel itself. It is a denial that Jesus came in the flesh. It is a denial that Jesus died for man's sins and is a denial of Christ necessary for salvation. If this is what it means, the sin that leads to death, it's fitting for John to conclude his letter in this fashion as well. It ties together the central theme that has permeated our assurance in the crucified Christ, our assurance in the Messiah who came in the flesh, who lived the perfect life, who died the sinner's death. It's assurance in that and teaching against and warning against the Antichrist and the false teachers who were permeating the church in Asia at that time. So if this is the sin that leads to death, a rejection of Jesus as the Christ, a rejection of salvation being contingent upon the Christ, then why wouldn't we pray for God to forgive that sin? Why? Why does John say you should not? He said there is a sin that leads to death, 
I do not say that one should pray for that. Notice he's not commanding it. And all the commentators said this. He doesn't, he's not commanding. He said, you ought not. Why ought not? Why not pray this? Because going back again to verse 14, which is central here. It is a prayer that will not be answered because it is a prayer that is not in accordance with God's will. How come? How come? Forgiveness of sin and redemption to eternal life comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not a rejection of his incarnation and work on the cross. If we ask God to forgive a brother who's committed adultery, God can, through the work of Christ, redeem that person from the consequences of their sin and cover the sin of adultery. If we ask God to forgive a brother who's caught in a lie, the power of the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover that sin. Every sin can be forgiven except the sin that leads to death. If we ask God to forgive someone for rejecting God's son as the Messiah, as the Savior who died for our sins, we're asking God, listen closely, we're asking God to save someone to forgive a sinner apart from Christ. In other words, we're asking God to forgive them and grant them eternal life by some other means, other than Christ, other than the cross. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That name is Jesus Christ. If someone rejects Jesus as the Christ, if they reject the need to be saved by his grace and the work that he did on the cross, that he offers to us through the cross, then that person cannot be saved. It is a sin that leads to death. Cannot be saved. And therefore, John says, this type of prayer, although not forbidden, is not encouraged because God's not going to answer it. God's not going to save someone who will continue in their rejection of Christ. Instead, we ought to pray that God reveal his holiness to that person. We ought to pray that that person sees the depth and magnitude of their sin in light of this holy God. We ought to pray that, not, that they don't reject the Christ, that they dismiss his incarnation and his death and resurrection. We ought to pray that God shows that to them. That by his life and death and resurrection, there is power of salvation. They can be saved, not in rejecting him, but in receiving him, in believing him, and in following him. That should be our prayer. Not, Lord, forgive them for rejecting your son. So John tells us, as he's drawing this to a close, and we will close next week, by God's grace, if it's in accordance with his will, He says, you can have assurance of eternal life. You can have assurance that your prayers are being answered if you have eternal life. And he says, and you can widely intercede as priests for your brothers and sisters. How is this possible? How is any of this possible? How can I have assurance? How can I know that my prayers are being answered? How can I wisely pray for a brother in sin for God to forgive that brother in sin? How? Because of the great prayer, our high priest. You are a priest, but you have a high priest. Our high priest offered up to God on that night that he was betrayed. In the garden, Jesus prayed to the Father, Matthew 26, verse 39. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
Jesus prays in accordance with God's will. He asks again, a few verses later, Matthew 26, 42, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The cup that Jesus asked to be taken away was nothing less than the full wrath of a holy God that was to be poured out on the elect for their sins. It was your punishment. It was my just desert of an eternal hell for sinning against God that Jesus said, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, Father, but not my will, your will. Jesus desired your salvation. He desired your eternal life more than he desired his own life. And so when he asks God, thy will be done, he simultaneously reveals his great love for you because he knew, Jesus knew that in order for you or me or anyone to be saved, for any of us to have eternal life, he knew that he, the perfect lamb, the perfect man, had to die on that cross, that he had to drink that cup completely. He had to empty it every last drop, every single sin Christ knew he would have to bear for the elect if anyone would have life. So when Jesus says, Lord, thy will be done, it's a radical expression of his love for you. A radical expression of his love for God and his desire to glorify God by making a holy people that will glorify his name both now and for eternity. And God answered Jesus. He said, you must drink the cup. He said, you must die on the cross. He said, you must bear in your body every sin of every person that I will save. God answered him and said, there is no other way. And Jesus said, all right, Father. And he went to the cross. Our sins against the holiness of God are so grievous, so wicked, so filthy, so unforgivable that it required the death of God's only begotten son to bring any hope to mankind. If one soul was to be saved from the flames of hell, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the sinless man had to die and give his life as a ransom for many. And so he did, so that you and I might live. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 7, verses 22 and following, Jesus has therefore become the, the guarantee of a better covenant because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives, listen to this, he always lives to intercede for them. For whom? For you. If you are in Christ, he intercedes for you. Verse 26, such a high priest meets our need. <clears throat> One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. This is what you need. This is what I need. My beloved, what a great assurance we should have of enjoying eternal life. Not because of the work that you have done, but because of the great work Christ accomplished on the cross. What great assurance we should have because of the love that God expressed through the crucifixion of his own son. What great assurance we should have in our prayers being heard. 
knowing that Jesus prayed, Father, thy will be done, knowing that Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and God answered those perfectly in accordance with his will. What great assurance we should have. Our high priest completed the necessary work on the cross to redeem sinners like us. Saints, John does not call us, and nor do I, for you to have assurance in your faith, assurance in your work, assurance in your going to church. The assurance is in Christ and the work of Christ on the cross. So John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. By God's grace, we will know this morning that we have eternal life and as a result, live boldly in the present as we await his glorious, glorious return. Let's pray to that end. Father, we come before you this morning as a church recognizing how woefully short we have fallen in this area. That many of us and maybe we collective have not had the assurance that your scriptures offer to us. Truth be told, Lord, many of us have put our assurance in things other than the truth of the gospel revealed in the Bible. Many of us have put our assurance in ourselves, in our works. Many of us have put our assurance in something like a baptism or a religious experience. Many of us have put our assurance in the fact that we have been born and raised in the church. Father, I ask that you'd be gracious to forgive us of these sins and that you would give us that assurance that comes through the cross of Christ. That we would have assurance in him and his work, that we would have assurance because your spirit has manifest in our life a right doctrinal belief, a right love for our brothers and sisters, a right obedience and submission to the scriptures. And based upon these truths, we have assurance. And in light of that, Father, I pray that we would be bold in our testimony. We'd be brilliant in Christ. We'd be faithful prayer warriors. Spending less time exerting ourselves and petitioning you. Father, it is pride that prevents us and keeps us from going to our knees more regularly, especially for our brothers and sisters. I ask you to be gracious with us this morning, Lord. Make us a church that is dependent upon prayer. Give us the great confidence as your children in knowing that you will answer every single prayer we lift up to you in perfect accordance with your holy will. And then make us pray boldly. Make us pray regularly and faithfully. I praise you for this passage, Lord, for this calling us to assurance for desiring us to know that we know that we have eternal life. If it is pleasing to you according to your will, Lord, I pray that you would bless us with that understanding as a church this morning.
that we might reflect more accurately the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. For to him belongs all the glory and honor and power, both now and forever. In his name, amen.